Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. Good morning, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics and trash from a feminist perspective. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn and I'm very lucky to be joined by Nadia Hernandez this morning, who's filling in for Katie Winton. Good morning. I wanted to begin by acknowledging that Agenda on FBI Radio is broadcast on Gadigal land and to also acknowledge the Gadigal people as the original custodians of the land we broadcast on and pay my respects to their elders. I acknowledge the significance of Redfern as a place of strength, resistance, knowledge, sharing and storytelling for many communities and would like to honor that history. I don't know about you, Nadia, but I'm feeling very positive about the show this morning. Big thank you to Beyonce for ending Mercury Retrograde with her incredible performance at Coachella last year. Um, last year. Last week. And it's a, been a big week of drama for women in rap, which means we get to play a little bit of Nicki Minaj today, which is always lots of fun. Um, and we have not one but two interviews coming up on the show, so very excited about that. Yeah, up next, we're talking to Nadia Bailey, author of the Book of Barb and the world's best BFFs. She'll be talking to us about ballet and balancing acts, women in sport, a panel looking at women's experiences with sport in Australia that's happening as a part of Sydney Writers Festival, which kicks off in a couple of weeks. And a little later in the show, we'll be talking to Angela Sullen and Emily Havea. Uh, from Brown Skin Girls, which is a play about three black and brown women navigating the complexities of life as 20-somethings in Sydney. So very excited to talk to them uh, a little bit later in the show. But first, we need to talk about Coachella. Beyonce made history as the first black woman to headline Coachella on Saturday. The set saw Beyonce dance with Solange and reunite Destiny's Child, infusing black cultural themes and symbolism throughout the show, centering around HBCU homecoming traditions. I've been seeing this a lot, but I actually don't know what HBCU means. So HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And it was such an amazing performance that I think most of us were watching on YouTube at work. However, questions continue to be raised about the owner of Coachella, Philip Anschutz, who has previously donated to funding extremist anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-abortion groups. Anschutz was also revealed to be one of the biggest donors of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is reportedly sponsoring more than 200 anti-LGBTQ bills in 34 states, with 17 of those bills specifically targeting transgender Americans. Yeah, this is really disappointing, especially if you think about the kinds of performers that have headlined Coachella. Like, I, I mean, I immediately thought of Lady Gaga, these um, performers that are making money off music that promotes equality and anti-racism, that's supposedly pro-equality, pro-women, and they're making money for this guy who's funding anti-abortion, anti-LGBT uh, bills. And I know there is this opinion that we maybe expect too much uh, from celebrities, and I think that in the past that might have been true, but... The politics of, or the kind of optics of making money out of uh, causes like women's right or reproductive freedom and making money from the queer and trans communities and then that money being mobilised to oppress those people is just so bad. Yeah, I totally agree. But if there was one incorruptible moment, it was when Cardi B performed Heavily Pregnant. If you missed it, 
you just missed out. <laughs> Cardi B hit the stage very pregnant and very confident, wearing an all-white ensemble in homage to TLC, with a cohort of exotic dancers in the background, joined by a majority of her collaborators on Invasion of Privacy. And I'm just going to say that watching her and Kehlani perform Ring together made me a little bit teary. A little bit teary? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, SZA, who despite losing her voice and every detail of her performance going wrong, you know, she showed up, she did it, and brought Kendrick Glamour out on stage and I loved it. Cardi also twerked on stage mentioning this week on the Ellen show that she was just trying to show the world how she got pregnant. I love that so yeah, so me much. Too. It's so good and I really think there's something changing in the kind of visibility of pregnant women just recently and I don't know if it was Ali Wong's Netflix special Baby Cobra or what it was, but I'm seeing so much more like pregnant people in stand-up and on stage, like musicians on stage with really like physical um, sets. And watching Cardi B, I don't know what you would call it, like reverse cowgirl at Coachella, I was like, wow, you don't usually see pregnant women talking about their sexual lives or even having lives. It was like, I don't know, it just, I feel like in the last six months even, I've seen so much more like very physical acts by pregnant women. It's really cool. It's very cool. A little closer to home, Miss Blanks, who's been a guest on Agenda, this Thursday wrote a piece for The Guardian titled, As a Trans Woman of Colour, My Words Are Met With Silence. Yeah, in the article she talks about how in the last few months um, she's needed the music industry support so with a lot of the drama with Kieran J. Callanan, but there was no public action while mainstream, largely white feminist voices dominated the Me Too debate. So she talks about how whiteness and white supremacy and white cultural pervasiveness directly impact and intersect with Me Too in Australia. She talks about her frustration at being told that, you know, we're all in this together, when in reality the conversation is really complex. And the current movement, in a way, denies that complexity by like continuing to silence women of colour and trans women in particular. Yeah, that's something that we are grappling with. As white voices are amplified within the Me Too movement, thankfully, Ms. Blanks included some helpful tips. Uh, so Ms. Blanks stated... Uh, number one, be inclusive of LGBTIQ plus people, people of color and people of various intersectionalities when discussing social change. She also suggested that men needed to be championing change and doing the labor. Men must help dismantle a system that only rewards nuance or provocation when it is embodied by white people. Men must cut across the moral confusion of Australia. Uh, she also said, make talking about healthy relationships and ending abusive behavior and culture a regular activity with friends and family. That's a fun dinner time discussion. Yeah. <laughs> um, she also said to help create safer spaces where all survivors are believed and validated when disclosing abuse, which I think is a really big one. Another really big one and the final tip is to follow the wisdom of activists of colour who've been at the forefront of social movements and community development and social work for many years. Yeah, and this is particularly true of the Me Too mo movement and like Tamara Burke's work, which has kind of been erased by like Alyssa Milano and those kind of celebrities. So it's always important to look at the people that kind of started those movements and that huge amounts of work that they've put in. 100%. Yeah. And still in the rap vein, it's been three years since Nicki Minaj released the pink print and now she's back with Chun-Li and Barbie Tings. So I thought we could listen to Chun-Li because mainly because I really like it. Um, so Chun-Li, who you might know as the trailblazing martial artist from Street Fighter, is often cited as one of the first video game heroines to avoid the stereotypical roles of 
girlfriend, onlooker and wallflower. Instead, she kicked, chopped and grappled her way to legendary status all the while seeking to avenge the death of her father. She's, she's not really like a Princess Peach kind of character. Um, and Nicki Minaj has kind of borrowed that look, I guess. So we And we've talked about Nicki Minaj uh, a while ago in the context of the legacy of Missy Elliott, who was more about like solidarity between women in rap. But up until recently, Minaj was kind of out by herself. So she was a target, I guess, of other female rappers coming up. Yeah, Chun Li kind of references Nicki's alleged beef with Cardi B, which is apparently made up by the record labels. There was a leaked snippet of Minaj's initial verse on Migos' track, Motorsport, which revealed a complimentary reference to Cardi, which Nicki says was removed at the request of Cardi's label. So Chun Li is about being made to look like the bad guy in this apparent beef. Yeah, our producer actually had a really good point that at least these kind of diss tracks between Cardi B and Nicki Minaj, at least they like pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. Like they're not talking about their broken hearts or like being cheated on. They're like, you need to work harder and I'm better than you. So it's, I guess in a way it's cool. <laughs> yeah, these kind of rumours are always going to be around because obviously, you know, successful women always need to be in competition with each other. Mm-hmm. As Cardi B said, people wouldn't be satisfied even if we were making out. <laughs> she always has a good spin on I things. Know. I know. <laughs> Um, We're going to take a listen now to Chun-Li and stick around because up next we'll be talking to Nadia Bailey, author of The Book of Barb and the World's Best BFS. Really excited for that interview. This one has a strong language warning on it, so if you don't like swearing, maybe turn it down a little bit. Hey, yo. Look like I'm going for a swim. Dunk on him, now I'm swinging off the rim Bitch ain't coming off the bench While I'm coming off the court, fully drenched Here goes some hater rain, get your thirst quenched Style doing him in this Burberry trench These birds copy every word, every inch But gang gang got the hammer and the wrench I pull up in that quarter milli off the lot Oh now she trying to be friends like I forgot Show off my diamonds like I'm signed by the rock Ain't pushing out his baby's telly by the rock Ayo hey, I been on, bitch you been con Bentley tints on Prince on. I mean, I've been stoned. X-Men been formed. He keep on dialing Nikki like the Prince on. I've been on. Bitch, you been con. Bentley tints on. Fendi Prince on. Ayo, I've been north. Laura been cross. Play say Chung Lee. Drop the bins off. Mm. Oh, I get it. <laughs> they painted me out to be the bad guy. Well, it's the last time you're gonna see a bad guy do the rap game like me. I went and caught the chopsticks. Put it in my bun just to pop shit I'm always in the top shit Box seats, bitch, fuck the gossip How many of them could've did it with finesse? Now everybody like she really is the best You played checkers, couldn't beat me playing chess Now I'm about to turn around and beat my chest Bitch, it's King Kong, yes, it's King Kong Bitch, it's King Kong, this is King Kong Chinese ink on, Siamese links on Call me 2 chains, name go Ding Dong Bitch, it's King Kong, yes, I'm King Kong This is King Kong, yes, Miss King Kong In my kingdom, with my Tims on How many championships? What? Six rings on They need rappers like me They need rappers like me so they can get on their fucking keyboards and make me the bad guy, Chung Lee. Hey, yo, I've been on. Bitch, you been con. Bentley tints on. Fendi prints on. I mean, I've been stormed. X-Men been formed. He keep on dialing Nikki like the prince song. I've been on.
that was Chun Li by uh, Nicki Minaj. It's always really nice to be able to play some Nicki Minaj. And it's like her first song for a, a little while. So it's really good to have her back. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. And we're joined now by Nadia Bailey, author of The Book of Barb and the World's Best BFFs, a celebration of truly perfect friendships. Nadia, thank you so much for coming in today. And we're actually really excited, especially excited, because next week our show will be devoted to long distance friendships. So it's great to have someone who literally wrote the book on friendship. Um, so maybe you can give us a few tips on what makes a truly perfect friendship. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's actually appropriate that you're talking about long distance friendships next week because most of my best friends live in other cities, um, which is painful, but also I think a good test of a friendship. Um, I think one of the most interesting things for me is is those friends where even if you don't see them for a long time, if you don't speak to them for a long time, when you do get together, it's like you pick up like nothing has happened, like you've always been together. Um, But the things that I look for most are kind of like, you know, loyalty, generosity, people who understand that you have other things going on in your life, you might not always be able to hang out. I'm a terrible person for cancelling on my friends, uh, but I think, you know, best friends know that sometimes you're going to cancel. Mm-hmm. It's nothing personal. You're going to hang out. Just chill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process for writing World's Best BFFs? And was it something you were, like, intellectually interested in for a while? Sure. Um, it was a kind of a collaboration with my publisher, um, which is Smith Street Books. They're a really wonderful small press out of Melbourne. And we came up with this idea of, of um, celebrating the best friendships in the world throughout history and popular culture. It was kind of time to come out um, for Valentine's Day to kind of tap into that idea that, you know, love isn't necessarily romantic love. It can be um, the love of your best friends. Um, and, you know, with the rise of Valentine's Day and so forth, yes. it's uh, it's extra appropriate. Um, so basically I kind of just cast my mind through, you know, history, books, film, music, all sorts of things to try and come up with the people who I thought best encapsulated that idea. So the list is everyone from, um, you know, Barack Obama and Joe Biden to uh, Fox Mulder and Dana Scully Mm -hmm. to Robert Mablethorpe and Patti Smith, um, Jay and Silent Bob, Buffy and Willow. Uh, So it's, it's a whole host I'm really disappointed that Katie wasn't in here today because she's obsessed with, like, female friendship and, like, non-romantic, but also it can be romantic mm, mm. Um, friendship. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she'll have to listen back. Sure maybe <laughs> yeah. we should buy it. We should buy yeah, her the book. Yeah, we should buy the book. <laughs> um, we're both so curious about your choice to write a book about Barb mm-hmm. from Stranger Things because... Mm. Uh, Izzy and I have been talking about it, and we kind of felt like Barb slut-shamed Nancy. And so when she became this internet sensation, this internet darling, we were like, did we kind of miss something? (laughs) You know, I think that's fair. I think that um, there's definitely an argument to be made that she did slut-shame Nancy. Um, But the thing that I found interesting about that is that, you know, normally in in horror movies, the trope is that the the woman who does um, have sex with someone is the one who gets killed by the monster, and the virginal woman the good girl um, usually escapes. And so the interesting thing about Stranger Things, and I think the Duffer Brothers did this quite intentionally, is that they flipped that trope on its head. So even though um, perhaps Barb is failing in her feminist icon status uh, (laughs) at that point, um, the show itself is kind of making an interesting point about how that 
is something that runs through uh, a lot of horror movies and I guess just drawing attention to that. Mm -hmm. And how has the book been received by Stranger Things fans? Really well, I think. Um, There's been a lot of cool stuff that's come out of it. Um, It ended up being stocked on Topshop alongside the official Stranger Things collaboration that they did, um, which was really cool to see. Uh, And yeah, just like, you know, on Instagram, it's always a buzz to see people photographing it alongside, you know, their other Stranger Things merchandise, Mm. those super fans who will just like, you know, just really love, you know, anything tactile that they can tap into. So, And I think with super fans, it can be a little, I imagine it would be difficult to make content for mm, them because yeah. they're like, well, actually, if you go back to season, you know, blah, blah, Yeah, blah, yes. Like, and there, there is definitely, you know, um, <laughs> a contingent who perhaps disagree with me on some of my points. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I did take a little bit of creative license with her because, you know, her character is is not on screen for very long. She's in, I think, a total of three episodes. Um, she's yeah. killed off very, very quickly. So it's kind of nice to be able to fill in some of those gaps. Yeah. I love the playlist you made <laughs> I thought it was really cool. <laughs> yeah, that was good fun to put together, just like a trip down, you know, the best sort of sad 80s pop songs. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to turn now to the essay you wrote for Balancing Acts, a mm-hmm. collection of essays from more than 20 writers that explore women's experiences with sport in Australia. Can you tell us a little about the collection and where your essay fits into it? Sure. Um, so... As you say, um, there's 21 essays uh, in the book. It covers everything from um, football to surfing to chess to ballet to um, fandom of sport to cycling. Um, so it's it's a really broad look at all of the ways um, that women fit into sport in Australia. And it's, it's quite an exciting collection because there's such a a multitude of viewpoints. Um, But within those viewpoints, certain themes begin to emerge. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of talk about women's bodies and how they are um, portrayed, how they're judged, how they're viewed in the context of sport, gender performativity, emotional labour, racism, sexuality. Like, it's a topic within which so many other topics can be explored. Um, so there's some really, really amazing writers involved. Um, you know, Ellen Van Nieven wrote a beautiful essay on um, watching the tennis uh, and the kind of um, legacy of racism in Australian tennis. Uh, Gina Rushton wrote about yoga, cultural appropriation, all of that kind of thing. Um, Emma Jenkins um, wrote a piece on cycling, uh, and how women are constantly devalued in that field. Um, Astrid Lorange contributed this incredible index to the book, uh, which is really worthwhile reading because it actually um, kind of tracks out all of those themes that begin to emerge throughout the 21 essays. Um, so that's a really good resource as well. Uh, and my essay is about my experience growing up um, doing classical ballet. Yeah, it's a really, really wonderful essay. And at one point um, within it, you kind of talked about this interaction that you had with a doctor where he was, or she was saying, if you weren't so young, they would have diagnosed you with depression. And I was wondering if you could talk about that in kind of Western countries. We tend to mythologize childhood Mm. as this kind of carefree time. And your essay troubles that and the kind of way that the patriarchal ideas of femininity and the rigorous nature of communities like dance and ballet in particular 
impact on that childhood experience. Mm, yeah. Um, I think, you know, anyone who has done a sport or an art seriously from a young age would identify with this where um, you get kind of so involved in it that it just swallows your whole life um and I was at that time doing you know nine classes a week um so it was a huge huge commitment and you know childhood is traditionally seen as this carefree time but that's not the case for all people um and I guess my experience was that you know doctors and healthcare professionals maybe don't take you seriously when you're young, especially if you're a young woman. Um, I mean, it's well documented that women's pain is not taken as seriously. We have spoken about this. Yes, like, yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And, and very sad. Exactly. Um, and so I think when when pain is taken even less seriously. Um, and, there, and there seems to be a lot of pain in um, ballet. You were talking about um, the Vice sh- uh, show on like what ballerinas eat. Yeah. And how they just like get home and you have a very strict diet very because strict you're performing diet. and yeah. you ice your feet. And it's just, it looks brutal. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, <laughs> I remember a joke that we used to say uh, within my ballet school that. Um, you know the the girls who would go on to professional be professional dancers. What they would eat was salary sticks dipped in water. That was you know yeah. the expectations. I remember people hiding their food wow. when the teacher would walk past, and oh, they were really? eating like wow. you know a peanut butter sandwich. Mm. Um, so it is an an art or a sport um, that has a lot of problems, and I know that you know that's absolutely being addressed um, in ballet schools and that kind of thing, but any of these sports where it is so much focused on your body, you are going to also come up against, um, you know, eating disorders and and body dysmorphia and all of those things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, another quote of yours, and you say, she should be feminine but not womanly. She should be muscular but not appear to be. She should, if possible, uh, if she possibly can, be untouchably beautiful. Everything about her movement and attitude should appear effortless, even if she is in pain, especially if she is in pain. And I know you're speaking specifically about ballet, but that kind of impossibility that you're talking about seems to be replicated in so many other places. And mm. it seems like ballet is just this uber patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like on yeah. crack. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is kind of interesting because on the one hand, ballet is you know it, it puts an incredible demand on women um, on the other hand it is uh, an art form where women are at the center of it um, and and mm. men are kind of always there in, in a supporting role rather than in a central role so it's it is unique in that sense um, but as you say there is an incredible amount of pressure put on women to appear a certain way to be beautiful to to appear effortless even though they are ex- performing these extraordinary feats that require so much strength and discipline and training and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, um, so interesting, like even the history of ballet. Um, I came across this article which really surprised me about sexual exploitation as being the norm in 19th century, for 19th century ballerinas, just talking about how like powerful patrons would subscribe to the opera, not necessarily for the music, but you know, to then receive sexual favors from the dancers. And that's something that I never really thought about, you know. And um, 
Yeah, even cutting back to now, I saw some headlines across various news forums lately stating that Paris ballet dancers have complained about like bullying, sexual mm-hmm. harassment. So it's really interesting. Um, I think like your essay definitely resonated with me as a swimmer. So that's a completely different sports field. But when I was young, yeah, I was used to like this rigorous training hours, and uh, it's just really interesting how. You know, put so many expectations on yeah. on young women. Yeah, yeah. and especially um, when oftentimes the people in power in those organisations, whether that's you know the the, the ballet masters um, or the artistic directors, are often men. Yeah, um, and so you get this kind of power imbalance between. The people who have the decision-making power to say, oh, you're going to be a soloist, you're going to have the lead role, and, and, and the women who are try- uh, vying and, and, you know, trying to um, uh, follow their careers. Um, and we're seeing this play out in culture, you know, across all of the industries. This is, you know, the Me Too. This is... It's, it's happening everywhere. Um, I remember when... Black Swan came out. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Um, and, you know, it's quite an intense movie. It's it's a horror movie. It's quite fantastical in some senses. But watching it, I was like, oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Accurate. And yeah. it's funny that people watch it, and you might have the same um, experience with swimming, where it's like... You- people would be watching it being like, this is a horror film. And like yeah. athletes would be like, this is actually like, this is a reality. reality. Yeah. And I think it will be really interesting um, in the panel to see how those kind of themes come out. Um, last time we did a, uh, a show on women in sport, we accidentally called them genres of sport. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like we will learn a lot from attending the panel and reading the collection of mm. essays as well. Um, when is it happening? Uh, so it is Thursday the 3rd of May um, at 11.30am at the Seymour Centre. Amazing. Well, we'll put a link up to that. Would you be able to let us fill us in on who else will be on the Yeah. Um, so uh, Stephanie King is moderating. Um, Gina Rushton, Rosalind Helper and myself are the panellists. Oh, Rosalind Helper. Cool. Amazing. That would be lovely. Yeah. If you've just turned in, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio and we're chatting to author Nadia Bailey. Coming up on the show, we'll be hearing uh, about Brown Girls, a play about three black and brown women navigating the complexities of life as 20-somethings in Sydney. But before that, we have a bit of an announcement to make. Music New South Wales, who partner with us on programming some of the music on agenda, have just announced the return of Women in Electronic Music Masterclasses. Last year, our producer, Mari, went along to some of the masterclasses and said there were some really cool classes taught by artists like Miss Blanks and Rainbow Chan. Which is pretty hard to top, but this year's masterclasses sound amazing also. So happening on the 12th of May and 19th at 107 Projects in Redfern, you can learn about everything from electronic music production to DJing and audio engineering with teachers like Lupa J, Habits, Maylin, Ebony, Bodu, Abatonier, and Tonya Gauchi and Michelle Barry. Plus there'll be an Ableton Live Masterclass with Ableton Live School um, and Nina Girachi. Um, everyone wants to learn how to use Ableton so it sounds like it'll be really, really uh- good. I think it's time for you to start your DJ career. Is I have, I've been thinking, I have thought about it. <laughs> I think it's the time is now. So tickets yeah. are $35 via application through musicnewsouthwales.com. Now let's hear from Habits with their latest track, Raw Shame. If you like this one, you could head along to their songwriting masterclass. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. Oh, man. 
That was Habits, Raw Shame. Uh, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and we're joined now by Angela Sullen, Emily Havea, and Sela Vai <laughs> from Sydney Artists Collective Blackbirds, which dissects the female, non-Indigenous, Black and Brown experience in Australia. So can you tell us about the origins of Blackbirds and its name? Yes, yeah. we can. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, look, we're not part of the core collective, which is Aisha Ash and Emily Uvule, um, and they're over in NZ, but it's about black burnings, about the term used to when they would capture Pacific Islanders to come to Australia specifically to work on the plantations for slavery with cotton and the sugar cane fields as well too. So that's where the term comes from and that's what they've used to call their group. Mm, cool. Company, which okay. focuses on... Uh, the black and brown experience um they've done the company has performed like in uh new zealand at the moment and done some shows in melbourne and across sydney so we've asked you to come in today to talk about brown skin girl which is the upcoming play on april 25th to 27 at the griffin theater um, which is about the lives of three black and brown women as they navigate the complexities of life as 20-somethings in Sydney. Um, <laughs> just thought of that for so much longer. <laughs> I read about yourself. <laughs> um, and over the last few weeks and months, we've been coming back to hashtags like the first time that I saw me. And I imagine mm. that for some people watching Brown Skin Girl, it'll be the first time that they see themselves as black and brown women in Sydney up on a stage. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering how that feels for you to be may- potentially the first time someone might have seen themselves reflected in theatre. I mean, I think it's, like, the reason that I perform, actually. Yeah. Um, to be, like, a role model, to be seen uh, by other people who I would have liked to see when I was growing up. I remember I, I went to drama school, and I remember second year I had a bit of a crisis, and I was um, Googling uh, brown actress Australia. We all know that one. <laughs> and a bunch of, you know, white women with brown hair came up, um, and it was... Like, uh, the word actress is just like, you know, you get scrolls and scrolls and scrolls of uh, white women, so... Mm. Even when you look at, like, casting networks as well, too, just, like, just to see yourself and you're going, oh, actually, I kind of... Which is great, like, you're kind of over here, you're like, oh, I'm in my own little field, but Mm. it's also a little bit scary and daunting because then you're just, like, a really new kind of face, it seems like, in a way, when which you're not, you know? Yeah, and it's really hard as well with those casting things to maybe when you do find other black and brown women, it's also the fact that it's never as you or to tell your story, but more so sometimes exoticized or to tick a box. box And it's a white person that's written that role for you. So they actually don't know what it's like to move about in the Mm. world as a brown or black body. You know, you can imagine it, you can put tan on, you can change your hair Mm. and dye it, but you get up and then you have that privilege to go back to being white. (laughs) We have to get up and like this every day and move through like the microaggressions that we have to face or the little comments and and how people just stereotype you the way you look. I mean, so I think that's why it's really important to have yourself represented and Mm. it's beautiful to maybe that might be the first time somebody might see themselves themselves in you and it's Mm. also a little scary because you want to make sure that you do right by them at that yourself and them just you feel like it's a responsibility responsibility, yeah Mm. yeah Yeah, of course and when was the first time you also yourselves reflected in the media or art i think for me it would be a lot later you know um because like today today. (laughs) 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 because i i would first grew up and i would always my first visual i had of a black 
woman came from seeing Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act um, so and good. Oprah. And also, I've also been like, you know, a large woman for most of my life. I was dealing with weight as well, too. So it was really hard to see yourself and not be um, kind of sometimes a little bit like, oh, that's that's all I'm going to get, those kind mm-hmm. of roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, it's hard because I don't, like when I see women that look like me, they're out in the industry, sometimes they're just really the butt of the joke. You know, they're not really strong characters, but then you see amazing women like Octavia Spencer who has had to go through all those stereotypical roles and then finally get good roles that are actually meaty and and have meaning to them and actually make you see that physical body in a whole different light you know because you're not just one representation you should talk about um looking for ella brandy the show um brown skin girls is written by myself uh angie and aisha ash and yeah. Stella is choreographing it and um we should put that first and um it's quite amazing to get up on stage and speak your own words especially as actors when we spend so much of our career pretending to be other people and wearing other people's, people's words. words wearing their costumes like you know it's a whole facade mm-hmm. art, I think. And we did an iteration of Brown Skin Girls about a year ago for the... Um, Festival Fatale um, at Dalian Hurt. Yeah, the Dalo. The Dalo. The Dalo. The Dalo. Sorry, that's my Australian collaboration. Let me get Sharon out. Dalo, guys. Is that the Dalo 2016? Give a shout out. But it was so, like, it was so amazing. We did it. It was a mm-hmm. one show. It was a different iteration of this same show. Yeah. And after we came up, the three of us came off stage and we were shaking and crying and it was it was mm. a huge moment. But yeah. you talk about looking for Ella Brandy. <laughs> okay. In okay. the show, yeah. Also, like, you know, my background is a little, it's mixed, right? It's um, <laughs> Italian, African-American and Cherokee Indian and then I've grown up in Australia. Um, <laughs> so it's like... Dissect that. Come on. <laughs> and predominantly most of my life I've grown up in an Italian household. You know, my mom's from Naples and that... And, you know, looking at Ella Brandy was the next thing, thanks for mentioning that, <laughs> that when I saw that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that represents the life that I have at home. Like, I have a nonna, tomato days, all that kind of stuff, you know, and that was really cool. But then mm. at the same time, I didn't fit into that group because apparently there's no black Italians. But here I am. Here you are. Living you are. Yeah, Pave the path. Pave the path. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of that is, is like understanding that our, our heritage and us being third culture kids born in a country but having so many different backgrounds and not seeing a lot of that like for me in terms of what we do it's so much about visibility mm-hmm. so much just about that and like M over here next to me is actually only the second Tongan Australian creative that I've ever mm-hmm. met since becoming a choreographer and in my whole dance background I only met one like a few years ago and that was like a it's like a calming, unicorn so yeah it's like a <laughs> unicorn, <laughs> unicorn. <laughs> yeah. but yeah it's like a soothing feeling like just knowing that there's another other in the room mm. and especially having those things where you get so many people I'm not obviously Tongan or obviously Australian and it's it's that in-between feeling constantly. So when you know there's another person That's out there. That's in that same category in the way that you guys can like bond over. And it's quite 
like knowing that you're third culture kids, like we can bond a little bit easier exactly. versus than being like having to identify with one particular culture mm. that's part of our mm. background because we understand having to mix that, yeah. you know. And we also got some other artists. We've got Ruth, Gianna, and then we've got Get to Work that also going to be a part of Brown Skin Girls too. Yeah. And Ruth and um, Gianna are also photographers and Get to Work are like a, a movement collective and they do like a lots of really cool video installations as well too, which is going to be in the piece. But also like me and Jana, she's also another African American, Cherokee, Indian, and a Napolitana Italian. So yeah, that's, that's the first time ever. <laughs> I know. Apart yeah. from my sister, Isn't that crazy. Yeah. yeah. And then you see them and you're like, hey. <laughs> so I feel you like that's what we want people in the audience to feel for brown skin girls yeah. is like yeah. a hi, like yeah, someone so else. Well, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about brown skin girls. Um, it's made up, as you were saying, like a, like a multiplicity of experiences mm. and of histories. And I think particularly in Australian culture and in a lot of Western cultures, brownness, blackness and being a person of mm. colour is kind of collapsed into one homogenous thing. That it's mm-hmm. just that you are brown, totally. so you are these certain things. So yeah. mm-hmm. I was wondering if you talk about the how you kind of work against that within Brown Skin Girls or with it even. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that's a common thing um, for me personally with Pacific Islander cultures and especially since Moana coming out, you know, like (laughs) everything with a lay on it or everything with a bit of a dance or (laughs) something is is Moana. (laughs) Um, So I think we work really hard and I've been reading up a lot about recognising what a Pacific identity is, but that talks a lot about not homogenising it and bringing it all into the same thing because then that's when we lose our own individual identities and cultures and traditions and everything that comes with that. I think within black black girls, brown skin girls, (laughs) hey, (laughs) what we we try to do is we first we start off with that base level that we're all brown and we're kind of similar. Just attacking the stereotypes straight away. (laughs) You know, because we get it. Like, we've had it. We've been mistaken for each other. or We look physically very, very different. But because we're brown, it's the same. Mm -hmm. And also walking around in Australia, and especially in the white context of Australia as well, too, you kind of are just categorised and no one sees you as Mm -hmm. your separate entity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we start to deal with. And then we kind of pull that apart. Mm. to find out actually how are you like why are you, are you brown, brown? How are you brown? Mm. and how you know happen? and how yeah. how how did this come to be you yeah. know yeah. which is a question we get asked on the daily like yeah. where are you from like have you ever gone home oh what are God. you home is bendigo yeah and there's just this really alienating it's like you know yeah. being asked what mm. are you and you're like Definitely. well i'm a human yeah, um, yeah. it's funny because it comes packaged with like such good intentions and yeah but such ignorance and like it's just when you get asked that every day or if that's the first time that that's the first thing people say to like bring that conversation and so we're talking about things that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and sometimes what we want is for people to understand when they leave this to just question how you encounter and counter somebody and question how is it that you can walk through this world as you are without having to think about this but maybe how does it feel for somebody else Mm. you know um and it's not saying that we don't want to talk about this stuff. No. You know, yeah. it's it's a difficult conversation and sometimes you're not going to get the reactions that you want, but the only way to get through it is go through the hard slog and talk about this stuff, mm. you know. But, I mean, I would love it if sometimes people would ask me not 
to touch my hair mm. or to <laughs> you know <laughs> Next um, question. Yeah, yeah. I'll let do you want it, I'll let you get in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got some things about hair too, don't you? Well <laughs> oh, yeah, that was our next question was about the kind of for black and brown women, could you talk about the physical space? And something that I hadn't thought of before was the kind of violation of that space as brown women the politics of taking up space and then in terms of your hair of that space being violated yeah, yeah. Mm. and your body is all too mm. yeah totally you, you just People have ownership over you in public spaces without you like even you're a realizing. pregnant lady or something yeah which is also like messed up <laughs> it's yes yeah. let's talk about that for a second <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> babies <laughs> <laughs> it's so messed up yeah. it is yeah. and I imagine it's the same yeah. hair where it's just like yeah, you do that to somebody else. Honestly. And for yeah. to get offended as well too. Yeah. Because, I mean, for me, it took me a while to be able to say no to people, mm-hmm. to allow them not to touch my hair because this is a really, I guess, a weird statement to say, but it's happened. And I've grown up predominantly seeing only white faces. So for me, I never really thought of myself as a brown woman totally. until I went to acting school and then I realised, oh, I'm getting classed in these particular roles because mm-hmm. of this that and is- my weight and the way I look. And so how I move in the world means that like, you know, people feel like because I'm a, I'm three things, I'm a black, fat, brown woman, right? They think that they have ownership. They can touch my hair, offer me money to touch my hair, mm. make backhanded comments like, oh, your hair's really lovely, but I wouldn't want to have that. Men mm. g- physically grab your body or yeah. s- slap your, your butt without... Yeah. Just really just asking, slappable, yeah, you know, quote unquote, like, yeah, yeah, it's not being seen butt. as. I think not being seen as human, and I think it's quite difficult with even sometimes friends or when you're getting to know people, you can mm. see that they have good intentions, but it's really important to meet with that understanding because we've in black and brown histories had such a long line of that oh, kind of shame. being made a spectacle out of and mm-hmm. violated in terms of going way back when they first use African females in human zoos because of their body shapes, shapes and how much that was poked and prodded at and then and then used for fashion in use for fashion and um, yeah so I think a lot of that it's like how much can we let it slide until we're like well that's actually not okay because Mm. we're in a time now where we're trying to reclaim that and Mm. reclaim our identity and humanness as well yeah i remember i was shocked aisha who is the third member of this show Mm. um she has an incredibly like an amazing afro but she never wears it out in public because she finds that as soon as she wears it Mm. out it's like an invitation to be touched yes (laughs) and without asking without asking Mm. it's like by taking up the space that your hair naturally does, you're mm. inviting people to... How about with you as well, too, when you're talking about, like, with your hair, like, your experience with your own hair? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's a, there's a whole show about the experience with my hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Ed. <laughs> Which we next week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean... I used, I used to have a lot more hair. I used to have a lot, a huge mop mm. of curly hair. I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I went through a breakup and I cut it all off because that mm-hmm. stereotype is totally a thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm a new person now. Um, but yeah, I remember like like going to job interviews and feeling like I had to tie it up yeah. or like mm-hmm. not like my hair would take up so much yeah. space that I didn't actually feel like I was allowed to take up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But um, yeah, and that idea that natural hair or Afro hair or big curly hair is not is unkept, yeah, or it's unclean or unprofessional. And, and it's like beautiful. we're just out here just trying just to wash our hair and totally. and get this job interview, yeah. which has nothing to do, to do with, with our hair. capability, you yeah. know. And then what they want you to do is for a long time for me, like I put a lot of chemicals in my hair to make that straight mm. and burn my scalp, and I had mm. like actual horrible like sores mm. you know and you talk to any like woman like we pretty much have done gone through that like if you're from an african experience you, you're gonna have to put a relaxer at some point and that stuff burns mm. to make it look okay for you mm. to be like oh yeah i can talk to you now i can mm. see you in this business you know yeah. um yeah i was actually surprised about what you were saying that people were offended when you told them that they couldn't touch your hair mm-hmm. and I think that kind of fragility mm-hmm. is a big part of the conversation yeah. it's like they are difficult conversations but on the other end you have to be open to mm-hmm. taking on that and yeah. you know being like oh thank you for explaining that to me now yeah. I won't do it to other people being like well you shouldn't be so sensitive yeah. about oh it you shouldn't all. be yeah, so exactly. aggressive yeah that's that's Angry right, angry woman. woman. <laughs> I was just asking a really nice thing, and I'm like, well, actually, me saying no, does it mean that I'm being aggressive? It's just telling you that I have an opinion. An opinion, yeah. and I have, you know, standards for myself. I don't want you touching my hair. Do you know how much time it takes? <laughs> and there's money products in there as well, too. Mm. And I don't know where your hands have been. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've seen some people leave toilets without washing their hands. I don't know. <laughs> And it makes me feel like I'm in a petting zoo, do you yeah, know? Like, yeah. I'm to be owned, and I don't think that's okay. If I give you that permission, then that's for me to do that. Yeah. Um, I thought what you said about the high moment on stage, that's really beautiful of people resonating with that experience mm. and seeing themselves reflected in it. That's really amazing. Um, I wanted to know more about the concept of third culture and what that is and uh, explain that to the listeners. I think that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, so third culture is being essentially caught in between cultures. So for instance, uh, my dad is from Tonga, my mom's from Australia, but in Tonga, I'm not Tongan, I'm born and raised in Bendigo, mm-hmm. but in Australia, I'm not Australian because I'm brown, so you're kind of caught in between, in between. the cultures. Yeah. It's like wherever you your background comes from, they kind of don't quite claim you and they see the other mm. in you, so you're not quite that. And mm. it's it's just like this it's murky area. Yeah. Remember the first time I read the definition on Wikipedia yeah. of third culture kids, <laughs> hey. I was shook to the core because yeah. I was like, oh my just lord, that is my experience. Same, same. Yeah. Yes. But only last year when yeah. I first like joined Blackbirds yeah. and they, um, they linked me an article and they were writing down, not symptoms, I'm not going to say it was like a scientific <laughs> <laughs> study on it, but it was just say commonly third culture kids just feel constantly on the in-between, constantly yeah. like mm. there's no particular one place to feel at like home, home. And, and like... And a, home's a big issue. So big for identity. Yeah. And because you... It's like, where where do I go and where do mm. I start? And there's like part of me that knows quite a bit about my Italian side, but the my African-American side, it stops at some point because mm. of slavery, you know, mm. and I don't, I don't know. And you're just going, I, where do I fit in? Mm. Because it also comes up fact is because people see you different because you're a different mix. Mm. They're always constantly asking you, where are you from? Even though you feel like this should be your home. Mm. So it yeah. makes you question, yeah. is this my home? Yeah. Is this my mm. home and am I ever going to feel yeah. at home? Mm. Because 
people are always going to see the other. Yeah, it's so yeah. interesting as well because you start to kind of resist that idea of, of this place being your home. Yeah, mm. when people question you all the time in the place that's your home. Yeah, you know? and keep yeah. asking you like, no, but no, like, but where, where are, are you from? from? Or where yeah. you, what's your background? And yeah. just the simple answer of like, no, I'm from Sydney. I live in Alexandria. It's or not in enough. No, yeah. Yeah. And you can no, see yeah. in their eyes, it's like, <laughs> what I'm trying to figure out is, <laughs> why are you so dark? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think that's what's so amazing about Blackbirds as yeah. is, is that it's created a space for third culture kids to get together and bond with other third culture kids because yeah. it's like hanging out with these women is like often where mm. I feel most at home. Yeah. You know, yeah. getting to share a shared experience. Definitely. Different, but the same and yeah. it's also like finding that massive massive community of people that are third culture kids that are here in australia but have such a massive like massive diaspora as well because mm. we're not making work for naples italy or i'm not w- making work for tonga i'm mm. making work for the kids that are on the in between and in the no man's land and we're just trying and to just figure out what yeah, that is it's not just from one particular culture it's like from all yeah you know so we welcome also all women of color as well. Yeah. All people of colour. All people, people of colour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We'll, we'll put a link up to Blackbirds as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. A lot of people. And we'll see you guys on the 25th, I think. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much Come for coming. Through. <laughs> Excited to see you. <laughs> this is Now You Want Me by Alta. You'll be listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. <laughs> to you You say you don't know but I heard the truth Wait on you couldn't choose Can't see what we had is through
gonna get 